Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And let's be real, nothing screams horror like the holidays. This week, we're here with the Levex, the team behind the new film, A Creature Was Stirring. We've got producer Natalie and director, producer, editor Damien. They are also a married couple on top of being an amazing film power team. And this film is a holiday horror that explores all those warm, fuzzy holiday things like guilt and secrets and mental illness. The film follows Faith, played by Chrissy Metz, as she keeps her troubled teenage daughter, Annalise Basso, on a tightly controlled regimen of experimental drugs, their only means of fending off a mysterious and very scary affliction. But after two burglars attempt to rob the home on Christmas, they stumble upon a monster of a family secret. So we got practical effects. We got a color palette that will change the way you look at Christmas decorations. And we've got lasers. And we've also heard from this dynamic duo before. We had Damien on last month talking about his post-production process and how specifically he was able to use real-time editing and post-collaboration. We've also heard the first stirrings of this film over the summer in our episode with Natalie which covers all legal mistakes indie filmmakers should avoid. Both of these are must-listens, and now we're finally here to talk about the film itself. We're going to talk about production challenges. We're going to talk about working together as a married couple, being partners in life and work, and the different roles, having both a creative and an operation, working in the time of COVID, how to pivot in the time of COVID. And then finally, we're going to talk about something that we don't really talk about that much, in general, which is this sort of phase of publicity. You've made the movie, it's getting out there, and now here you are promoting it. So we're going to end getting a little meta. And with that, welcome, Damien and Natalie. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We're so happy to be here. Welcome back. It feels like it's a full circle, great end of year thing to have you back on the podcast together. Yes. Merry Christmas to you, Gigi. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. The holiday decorations are just coming out and it's and, and it and it feels disturbing now thanks to you too. Well let's let's start with the the production of the film. Like we do know a little bit and let's refresh the audience, you know, where you shot, how that came to be and all that jazz. Sure. Well, a creature was stirring in Select Theaters December 8th and on BOD uh, December 12th. Pre-order now on Apple. That's my plug. Let's see. We filmed the movie in summer of 22 in Louisville, Kentucky. It was it was it's really something shooting a movie that's set in a blizzard in the middle of summer. I a hundred degrees. It was a hundred degrees. With snow flurries, fake snow, and shooting inside of a, an actual house instead of on a, like a set that we built. And the house we could never the air conditioning could just never keep up, so it was always blisteringly hot inside. And so there were a lot of challenges, not the least of which were also having to shut down twice because people got sick. So it was it was rough, but I mean we got a movie done, and you know that. You know, once you have once you have a finished movie that you can show people, you kind of forget about all that hard stuff that you went through. But you you certainly learn a lot. One of the things that we hear a lot about just in the industry are big productions getting shut down due to COVID. Like I was working on an, an Amazon show that had to be shut down because there was a COVID exposure. But what does that look like for indie filmmakers, and how do you sort of mitigate that? Yeah. So. COVID insurance at the time of July 2022 was cost prohibitive for us as indie filmmakers making a low budget horror. And so we made the decision to have what we thought was a healthy 10% contingency where we basically were going to self-insure in the unlikely event 
of a COVID push. And I say unlikely because at this time in July, things were actually starting to ease. And we actually thought we were going back to normal life. But if you recall, actually during that time in July, COVID was surging both in LA as well as Kentucky. So we were grateful to have somewhat planned for that because when we had to shut down, because all of our crew was housed together in Airbnbs, we were able to use some of that contingency to pay the crew to stay and also to pay vendors and locations who had to then extend an extra week so that we could finish the movie. Yeah, it was having a contingency is, you know, commonplace for any filmmaking budget. It's just you never really think you're going to have to use it. And certainly not to the extent that we did, where we basically drained it just so that we could keep the movie from falling apart. So make sure you have your contingency in place. It would have been more fun to use it for things like cranes or an extra day. Or, or more lasers. Or more, or more lasers. <laughs> Should we talk about the lasers? The lasers it. and the sort of balancing operations and creativity between you two? Oh, lasers. So wait, I'll, I'll explain. For those of you that watch the movie, you will notice that there are some really cool in-camera laser effects in the movie. It was, it was an idea that I had to create this effect that's, that's sort of tied into the story of, uh, of, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but it ties into the story. And I wanted to use lasers, concert, you know, commercial quality lasers that you, they use in concerts, concerts and live shows. And, it, you know, there was a cost associated with that, but Natalie was trying to wear me down. Tell them why. Well, originally, Damien wanted to use some of the most famous laser programmers there were. Which would have cost, I mean, I want to fly, I don't know. I want to fly a guy from LA, which. <laughs> so the other, and the other consideration was that the line producer and I had never seen practical lasers used in any film. So we thought this is maybe just a crazy idea. Would this even work? And do we really want to create a line item for something that hasn't even been seen before? But I was, I was, I was, I had made my mind up and this is, I think a a lesson for anybody who's making a movie is like creatively, you really need to know where, what, what hills will you die on and what sacrifices are you willing to make and what sacrifices, what will you not concede on? Um, with the lasers, I had actually gone to this big vendor in LA and seen his shop and seen what, what he's capable of doing. And I was like, okay, so well, I know that we can make this happen. It's just a matter of like, what? you know, can we afford it? And, you know, I, I really appreciate working with my wife and producer who understands that, you know, there's money associated with this stuff. We have to be able to save money in certain areas. You have to be able to make cuts, but also, you know, at the same time, sort of respecting my vision and what I want to do. So, you know, we made plenty, I made plenty of other concessions, but I, I held my ground on the lasers. Now there were certain things I had to do like, okay, well, we can only have the lasers for like three days instead of four, you know, like that sort of thing. But we found, we found a vendor in Louisville who was not as prolific as the vendor in LA, but did a great job. So that helped with expenses. And we did have to work around their schedule. And I believe you also had to give up a techno crane. I, I had to give up. Yeah, I think I had to give up a crane, but uh, you know, the, the laser guy in Kentucky knew the laser guy in LA because really? the laser programming community is very small. So. I bet it is. So, Damien, you you are one of the producers on this film, but then you had to step into the role of director, which seems like a a, a big change. 
And then you had to lean even more on Natalie to be carrying the work of producing, which, you know, without a producer, you have no film. How did you, one, turn off that or take off that producing hat? And then two, like, what did those creative, healthy creative tension conversations, like, how do you approach those as a, as a team? Well, you're right. You, you have to step out of the producer role into the, the creative sort of director role. Unfortunately, on this last production, I wasn't able to do that as early as I wanted to because we were, you know, it's Natalie and I run the company together and we were trying to secure a production loan. So I'm dealing with financial stuff leading up to production. So I'm still very much like involved in that, which I didn't want to be. But the answer to your question is you surround yourself with, with a production team that you can trust. So I trust my wife wholeheartedly and implicitly. So I know that she can do anything that, 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 or she can do a lot of most things better than I can in a producing capacity, I believe. So that is just, that's what you need to do. You have to people that you have people that you can trust to hand it all over to and just have peace of mind to know that stuff's going to get done. I will also say that we did set specific boundaries wherein we said, yes, even though Damien can technically, he's a signatory who can sign a check, he agreed that he would not sign any check. And likewise, we said, if any crew member comes to you and has some kind of concern or needs like a budget increase, you have to send them to me or to our line producer. Damien, as director, has to wear the director hat and he has to be able to just focus on creative decisions, even though technically, yes, he's a producer. So during said, there was definitely boundaries in place. And that's a really smart boundary that, that she put in place. And I, w- I, I embraced it because I don't know what's going on in the day-to-day set operations whenever I'm working with actors and talking to my DP. Yeah. I have a very like t- specific technical question about, about that workflow. So like, you know, I, I just have been in the first time feature director seat myself and and one of the mistakes that i made was saying yes to some a department head who brought me something and not knowing that it was going over budget and because i was like blindly wearing the director hat and not even thinking about it so like from a workflow perspective if there's any like even concern of it should is that when you like loop in the producer or is it that that department head should have gone to the producer first or should have flagged like oh well if you want it this way it's actually going to be more let's bring in the producer i always said talk to natalie it was just i was the i it was it was a good cop bad cop thing i i was the, i was the understanding director who wanted you to have everything that you asked for and she was the one that she and our line producer got to be the ones who were like no I, I will say we said no and then tried to find a solution. Like I recall yeah. on a previous movie, you know, a DP really wanting a specific set of lenses. Damien also wanted that. It really just wasn't possible. So what is like the middle ground here? It is hard. Producing is hard. Like it's so easy to be, I think, vilified when you have to be the person who says no. I mean, it's an art. So, so you like to, you, you, when you say no, you're still offering a solution. You're always trying to find a way to make something work that could meet somebody with, based on the vision that they're working towards. I That's a lot of times like to use kind of, it's called the marriage therapist technique where I acknowledge, I completely understand why you want X. And it makes sense to me that you want that because it will give X to the film. However, Blah, 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 blah. We're not able to accommodate that because of our budget. 
and then try to find a middle ground. And I feel like that really helps the person who is expressing the need show, like acknowledging that, of course, they want what's best for the film. I do too. It's just beyond what we can accomplish with the few, you know. Yeah, and that and that's fair that too. And I, I think that I think uh, the mark of a good producer and, and director is also that they are at least partially a an amateur therapist, right? They have to be able to manage different personalities and egos and expectations, and at least make people feel like they're heard. You know, it's not no one wants to work with a jerk. But I would, you know, you you mentioned you know that producing is hard. I I want to just also echo that and say that making any independent film is going to be harder than than pretty much anything you ever do in your life. And I can say that, you know, we have three little kids and making an, an independent film is much, much harder than have, well, Natalie will say harder than having the birthing them and, <laughs> and, and then also harder than raising them. It's because at least you can expect what's going to come, right? <laughs> With, movies don't want to be made. Uh, they, they will, they will, they will try. They will fight tooth and nail to prevent you from putting together this thing that you have created, that you want to create. Yeah, that's so true. We we looked at each other multiple times and we're like, we should not be married. Like this should break us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's actually use that to pivot into the fact that you are married and you work together in a professional capacity. That in itself feels like it could be make or break. And here you are. You know, we're in the end of 2023. You seem stronger than ever. So three kids and and two movies in the can, like that feels like you guys are in it for the long run. How do you, how do you protect your relationship outside of making the movies? Or are you guys like all in all the time on every single moment on movies and relationship? We love therapy on this podcast. Like everyone who's like, go to a therapist, figure it out. Like there's a lot of that. We love it. Uh, No shame in going to therapy. I also think that part of it is just understanding each other's boundaries. You know, Natalie also has a, another full-time job. So I really try hard not to overwhelm her with the day-to-day operations of our production company, which I, you know, I, I typically oversee and just sort of knowing what everybody's, each other's limits are, right. And respecting that. You know, I would say that Unfortunately, with Damien's two movies, and this is with most indie directors, there are going to be daily disappointments. Like, oh man, I wish we had time for that shot. I wish I could have had this setup. I really wanted X. And it's just a constant pivot. And a lot of times I had to be the bearer of bad news, which killed me. And so I would remind him at the end of the day, you have to remember I'm your biggest cheerleader and I want just as much as you for you to get everything that you want and for you to get every shot that's on your shot list. So when I have to come to you and tell you the minor has to stop working or what, you know, whatever it is because of the extenuating circumstance, you know, I'm doing it as your ally and I'm not doing it for any other reason, because sometimes it's just really hard. Like every single day <laughs> you're but something didn't go as planned and that's, kind of how indie films work. And I believe her too. I mean, I think that this is, I, I think there has to be so much give and take. I really do believe her whenever she gives me bad news and I accept it because I, you know, I, I'm also a producer. I also understand the realities of production and budget. So if I'm hearing it from Natalie, then I know it's got to be true and there's no sense in fighting. Yeah. Unless it's lasers. Unless it's lasers, in which case go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> or go to Louisville. Or go to, uh, well, 
Is, uh, Don't say it. No, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> oh gosh, I get it. I get it. Uh, let's talk about like one of the the most p- surprising pivots of the project. Like some, uh, I'd love to hear what was a pivot that you had to make that was unexpected. Something that forced you to be on like thinking on your feet and figuring out how to make something work, and 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 then how it ended up working. Well, the first unexpected pivot was that we were originally going to film the movie in Russia. And then the whole Ukraine war turned uh, turned up, got got turned, and uh, so we were like, "Well, that's not going to happen." So then we pivoted to Oklahoma, and then we had to pivot to Kentucky. So figuring out where you're going to shoot your movie is a big deal. And then what you what were you going to say? I was thinking maybe on production of the tunnel. Boy, the 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 snow tunnel scene, which I think is one of the best sequences in the movie, and I've had I've, well at least. I've had a few people tell me that. I hope you guys all get to see it. That was a tough day, man. Like we filmed this, we had this this snow tunnel set. It was literally about twenty five foot long tunnel with like a couple t- twists and turns in it, and it was built in a parking lot. And we started we were we started shooting three hours late because the set wasn't ready. And I'm there like about to have a heart attack, and I'm thinking about how oh my gosh, this set doesn't look how I expected it to look. How am I going to do this? And this was a mental exercise of figuring out how am I going to reshoot this after I storyboarded and planned everything and nothing was how I expected it to be on the day. Mm -hmm. So that was me working with a good DP and figuring out just sort of like this puzzle piece of like what this tunnel is supposed to look like and how I can change the geography to make it work for the movie. That was a really tough one. Definitely the biggest on-set challenge, I think, that we faced. But I, you know, again, I'm so proud of how it turned out because like, it ended up being one of the scariest set sequences in the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the power, and I say this again and again, of knowing how to edit if you're a director. Even, I mean, the fact that I ever even went through the motions of directing, I say directing and I use air quotes because I don't think what I was doing was directing. Because I wasn't, I was thinking of the edit, but I didn't really understand how moments were going to cut together in literally. Like I understood in theory and I was like, and then this will lead here and I storyboarded the whole thing, but not until you get into your session and have messed around with footage. And we talked about this the other week on the podcast. As an actor, you should also know how to edit. Like you should at least have the gist of what it's going to be because that will empower you in these moments and empower you to make decisions. And it's so cool that you're able to like, shift into that mode, re-edit the scene, re-storyboard the scene, and then shoot it based off of like what you were going to get in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I I do, you know, feel like that my my 20 year plus 20 plus year career in editing is sort of a superpower when it comes to being on set. And it has saved me many, many times. I, I also just recall how oftentimes the actors would be surprised because you'd say, we got it, moving on, because he knew he had every frame he needed for the edit. And so they'd kind of be like, wait, what? <laughs> We're done. <laughs> yeah. But then in the end, now as they're being interviewed, they're like, we kind of loved it because, you know, we could move on and not do eight takes, you know, for safety. That's a that's an empowered way to be directing is when you're like, you're not directing for to find it in the edit, but rather you're directing to get the edit that you have in your mind. Right, exactly. 
Well, now we're in this phase where by the time this episode is coming out, it'll be out in the world. It'll have been in theaters. It'll be streaming into living rooms and you'll be probably you'll be terrifying some children who turn it on and didn't know that this was a horror movie. So you'll have to live with that. But but this phase of getting the word out for your film and being in the publicity, working with talent, working with the PR agency, working to get people to engage and to watch and to basically create word of mouth, which is also one of the most powerful things, something we never really talk about on the No Film School podcast. And because you are both the experts in these like specific areas, and I feel like we've gone really deep on post, we've gone really deep on legal, and here we are going deep on production. I'd love to hear about this next chapter that you're in. Right now, leading up to the release, it's all about publicity. It's about getting the word out, doing lots of interviews, making appearances, and getting people excited about this movie that they have no idea what's coming. And the horror community is, I, the horror movie fans are some of the best fans out there because they're so passionate about horror films. And they're so excited to see something different and something new and something fresh. And I'm optimistic that that's what they're going to get with A Creature with Stirring. I would also say we were very lucky that Wellgo, our distributor, was on board even before we went into production. And so because of that, we were... We were so excited to forge relationships with executives at Wellgo, even on set. And then we had a year and a half to work with them on a, what is the strategy for distributing it? And also even just to work with them on things like the title and the posters that we liked. And so building those relationships and keeping open minds and open doors, I think has also helped us a lot as well so that we could know what they were trying to accomplish, and we could assist in those efforts. We are just, we're so thrilled to have partnered with Wellgo on this because they really see the vision just as much as us. I want to also just, I want to echo what Natalie just said. Working with Wellgo has been fantastic. It really does help if you have a distributor who believes in your project. They basically gave us creative freedom to do whatever they want. And then once we delivered the film, we were intricately involved in the poster art in the DVD and the DVD and Blu-ray sleeves, which I just saw, which were going to be so cool. We got to be a part of like the editing the trailer. I was giving edit. I was. I didn't. I sadly did not get to edit the trailer. I really wanted to, but I was giving a lot of notes on it that they, you know, took very seriously. And so it was really lovely experience working with them. And if you do, if you are lucky enough to be able to make a movie or put a movie into production with a distributor in place, hopefully it's one that allows you that same sort of experience. To just put on my little lawyer hat for two seconds. Generally, I love it when you put on your lawyer hat. <laughs> generally, if you are lucky enough as an indie filmmaker to sign on with the distributor, you'll never get like approval rights over the title or approval rights over the DVD slave. It's just not common. We did not get it. But we were just so lucky because... Um, Relationships are important to us. We were so lucky to have partnered with Wellgo. And so we were given that ability to give our opinions. In fact, we came up with the title of the movie. So we, no, you did. Okay, I did. <laughs> and in the middle of the night, right? You sat up in the middle I of the woke night. I up in the middle of the night and I said, a creature was stirring. And I said, where? I'll get my gun. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then that became another film. horror movie. <laughs> but I mean, technically, we did not have a say in the title of the movie, right? Because mm. 
oftentimes a distributor, they can buy a movie, you never hear from them again, and you don't have a right to, right? They're going to cut their own trailer. They're going to create a poster. They're going to give it a title. You may hate it. And it's just not that often, even in studio films. I was going to say specifically studio. I, I know with like my partner's film, they they had their own poster for the Sundance premiere and the South by premiere. And then the studio made it a different poster. Yeah. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> yep. But what what are the what are the assets that are being created at this phase? So you mentioned trailer, poster, Blu-ray slash DVD sleeve, which I assume also transfers to the to the red box little image. What else are you pulling together at this phase? So the distributors pulled together key art, which featured a lot of our talent. I always recommend having your talent approve all of those pictures, even if they don't have a contractual right, because not only is it the courteous and nice thing to do, but you want your actors to be posting assets and promoting your film. So let's say you choose a key art picture and they hate it. It is very unlikely they're going to post it. Or if you put it behind them in an interview, they're just going to be in a bad mood. So you always yeah. want to get approval. You always want to be checking in and making sure that the actors are also happy. So they've been given folders of pictures and social media assets that they can share, as well as I think there's been some social media assets that Logo has created. Yeah, they're, they're creating social media assets. I believe they're making reformatted versions of the poster for, for online ads and that sort of thing. Another thing, a little piece of advice for anyone that's making an independent film. One way that you can really help yourself is by make your own press kit beforehand. So that would include uh, approved stills from your movie. You take high resolution stills, a trailer, a, you know, a media kit that talks about everybody who's involved that includes bios and a director statement and anything else relevant to the production behind the scenes. If you can cut your own EPK, have it ready. A lot of times distributors will require it, but everyone will be so pleased because then they don't have to put that together themselves. And it's just going to save you a lot of trouble. And you have, you have total control over it. That's something you can totally control. And the distributor will gladly take that from you and not have to, and you won't have to worry about what they're going to make. So make your own media kit. I will also add that in a circumstance where you have not sold your film yet, it can be a contractual requirement that you have to provide EPK footage or certain behind the scenes pictures. So then if you don't have that, you're left with screenshots from the film. So again, there's really no reason you don't want to do it and you don't want to be thinking about that because you're probably going to have to do it anyway. Here's a, here's a question. Should you or can you or be posting pictures before your film is bought? Posting pictures. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So... I would say that you would definitely want to use discretion. So for example, we didn't know what our distributor would think about showing the monster. So we were very specific with everyone on set. Do not post pictures of the monster on social media. Because if they wanted to do a Godzilla type trailer where you never see the monster and they never show it until the movie, we didn't want to ruin it a month, a year and a half in advance. So I think discretion definitely makes sense. And making sure your cast and crew knows that and talks to you before they post anything, especially if it could ruin, you know, or spoil, spoil the ending or something like that. Yeah. And I would, I would be very careful about posting behind the scenes stuff as well, just because you don't want to, you don't want to 
you don't want to show things that maybe don't end up in the movie or you don't want to give anything away. Yeah. We mostly posted pictures of like, you know, Damien next to a camera or whatever. Yeah. Or like crew members hugging. So I think that's wise. There's also, and again, I'm, I'm very open about the, the project that I'm working on on the podcast because it feels like me and my closest friends just chatting over drinks or coffee. But there is something that I feel, I don't know, protective over the film until it's done and ready to be out in the world. I want it to be presented in a way that like does it justice and, and honors all the work and the performances and everyone at every stage of the process. So that's kind of why I've thought early on, like one, I really don't want to be posting about it or I want to put that pressure on the project. But also, I don't know, I, I, I want it to kind of, I want the project to have the space that it needs and of course, you know, mine's much lower budget than what you guys did and way more indie and micro budget, if you will. But still, I think that that thinking through these things, it, it does justice to the project as well and making sure that you're on set getting behind the scenes stills or pr- stills that you won't be taking. So you won't be taking screenshots uh, from your film, but rather photography to, to capture the feel of it. That's something that does justice to your film. I will say that. That's a very good point you made because in our situation, the film was out there. It was on IMDb. Our cast was on IMDb. There was a deadline announcement that, you know, Welgo was making it. So there was less of a reason to hold back information since it was sort of out there. You know, in your case, it's, it's different. And so it would make sense that you would want to have a different kind of release at that time. Now you are going through the this the circuits of talking about the film. Obviously, you're here on No Film School, but you've also been featured on many horror websites and blogs and interviewed throughout. Talk about being on the other side of the mic, being the person talking about your project and talking about the film, and sometimes working with the the talent to talk about the film and how you prepare and make sure that you're you're putting your best foot forward in those conversations. Well, it's really exciting to be on the other side of things, on the other side of making the movie and promoting it with the cast. The way I prepare is I usually have, you know, a list of bullet points of things that I really want to get across in a short amount of time in an interview, which, you know, rarely is more than 15 minutes, and I want to get people excited about the movie. So it's very clearly delineated. I'm going to be repeating myself a lot whenever I'm doing these interviews, just because I really want everyone to know these things about it and like what makes this movie different and special. And it's really a lot of fun to also sort of reminisce the cast and tell stories and talk about like why we liked doing the movie and why we enjoyed working together and, and all that fun stuff as well. For this movie in particular, I think that there are a lot of different things that make it special and unique as far as horror movies are concerned. The first being just the, the concept the story. It's got these really rich layered characters. I love character driven horror. It's about some heavy issues like addiction and estrangement, abandonment. It it has a wonderful creature that gave me an opportunity to make a completely practical monster. I'm a huge fan of practical creature and makeup effects, which I will never do a movie that doesn't have them just because it is it is a is an art form and I never want it to die. And we also got to do some really, really cool things with the color palette and really 
throwing back to the 80s aesthetic with these mm-hmm. really saturated colors, saturated blue. And, you know, my whole approach in the movie was to film this as if computers don't exist. So we're like, we're doing this, we're doing everything practical. It's going to be special effects. It's going to be creature effects. It's going to be, you know, like Hellraiser. It's going to be awesome. You know, that's the feeling that I want people to have. Like they're watching this new movie, but it really does call back to those great creature features of of the 80s and the 90s. We only have two visual effects shots, right? Yeah, there's, oh, only, wow. there's only a couple. We did a little cleanup stuff, but like n- nothing that you would ever see. Oh, we love that. We love that. I feel like that it's something that you can't ne- even necessarily explain beyond the feeling of how it works and what it makes you feel when when it is practical and also how it impacts the performances of the actors. I mean, there's just something so powerful about that. And, you know, it was not something I was aware of until I started dating somebody who loves creatures and practical effects and monsters. And now I've seen so many things burst through other things, walls or dogs or, you know, insert all those amazing creature effects. So I'm so glad you're keeping that alive. And and now in this, in this, you know, listening to this podcast, people will have a chance to go out and see it. How do you want them to prepare? Do you want them to like pour some eggnog, spike it with some whiskey or rum? What's the what's the ritual as they as they hunker down into their cozy, cozy fireplace lit TVs? Well I'm I'm never against any kind of cocktail. I love the holiday theme with the eggnog. I'm a huge fan of an old fashioned. That's my go to. So alcohol is definitely welcome. The, the <laughs> definitely the first the first thing they need to do is they need to go to Apple and they need to pre-order it or order it right now because that's going to be the best way to watch it if you can't see in the theater. Hell yeah! And then you know get somebody that you love to, that loves horror movies that you can watch it with, or somebody that doesn't love horror movies yes. that gets completely freaked out. That's going to make it even more fun for you to watch because they're going to be reacting to all the stuff that you're like, that's not scary at all. You know <laughs> exactly. Bring your nana. The, the big or bring your the dad. audience the better. Do a group viewing. We do have Christmas girls in it. What child is this? Yes. One unique thing about Damien's phones is that his wife, who is a lawyer, finds songs that are in the public domain so that we <laughs> don't have to pay for them. Yeah. So in his first movie, it was The Hokey Pokey, which is in the public domain. In this movie, it's What Child Is This? Yes. And we created our own lyrics. And so you will see yeah. that in the title sequence. So yeah, there's Christmas girls. You can listen to them everything. Yeah, the music is expensive, so find public domain music <laughs> to it, yes. you know. And you know, we had my our, my friend and composer Katrina Kane did did an arrangement of "What Child Is This," and then Shannon Wells, who wrote the movie, I had him write new lyrics based on the story. So when you hear the "What Child Is This" theme, you're not going to hear the actual lyrics. The lyrics actually are a teaser for the story. So I'm very really proud of that too. And our distributor used it in the trailer as well. Yep, there that's you right. Go. So you're rewriting the, one of the classics. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, this has been such a joy to have you on. It's clearly a family affair at every stage. So you listeners, it's time for you and your family to get together and cozy up and watch this film. We have learned so much this year from you two. And I know that we're going to continue to learn more. I'm so thankful for you taking the time and always being just so like honest and practical about things. I feel like anytime I come out of a conversation with a Levesque, 
I know that there's something I need to do and then I do it and then my life is better as a filmmaker. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for those kinds of words. kind words, Gigi. We, we love being here and we love the No Film School audience and we've gotten a lot out of, out of No Film School. I'll tell you that much. I, you know, it's one of my go-to daily sites, so. Yay. And where can people follow you? At Damien Levesque on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Natalie, how about you? I'm N Levesque on Instagram, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Yep. I'm not on X. I'm not on TikTok. I refuse. I will not do that to myself. <laughs> I, I'm with you, and I have to get off of X. I have to say, what, following you on Instagram, Natalie, I'm like, would never expect horror. It's just like the perfect family is what I see. <laughs> An amazing dog. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the No Film School podcast across all podcast platforms. You can also get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com. And you can follow us across all socials at No Film School. Thank you and happy holidays. <laughs>